Hi everybody, this is uh, Stepping It Up and Ichi again. Today we are going to take another deep dive into the endocrine block, but this time we're also going to be throwing in um, certain aspects of the reproductive systems, both male and female. So uh, let's get after it. So our first case today, we have a 27-year-old woman um, coming into the office complaining of discomfort during urination for the past three months. She has been prescribed antibiotics for a UTI at an urgent care center a few weeks ago, but her symptoms have persisted after that. And now she has noticed that she's having pain with passage of stool uh, in the last year, especially during her menses. And her bowel movements, although they occur daily, uh, they are soft and not watery, um, uh, but still that doesn't really explain her pain. Um, and the uh, our, our examination shows that she has suprapubic tenderness and an immobile retroverted uterus. Uh, our rectal vaginal examination reveals nodularity in the posterior cul-de-sac. Her urinalysis and urine culture are completely normal, so the question is, surgical biopsy of these pelvic nodules would most likely show which of the following. So let's, I think the most important piece of information here is definitely that, first of all, she's having discomfort during urination, but she's also having pain while passing stool. And that's a very important point. And um, regarding the, the, the uh, point about the stool, she's also having more pain during menses, right? So first of all, these, the pain occurs at two different locations because as you guys know, the uterus is kind of in between the bladder which sits in front of it and the rectum that sits behind it and she's having pain in both of these locations and it's getting worse during menses and adding on to the fact is that she has an immobile retroverted uterus as you guys know the uterus in a normal um, classical uh, condition um, that we normally see would be antiverted right it wouldn't be retroverted so this means that something must be having um, adding a traction force on the uterosacral ligaments and causing that uterus to become retroverted. So uh, right now, then our diagnosis kind of narrows down, narrows down to something that can uh, spread to multiple locations and cause traction on that uterosacral ligament, as well as the pain during pain during urination, pain during stool passage, and especially worse during menses. And that uh, should narrow you down to the diagnosis of endometriosis. So then if we surgically uh, uh, take out these pelvic nodules in that cul-de-sac, we should be able to just find our endometrial glands and stroma, which is characteristic of endometriosis. So that would be our first case. So our next case, is a 42-year-old woman um, who's gravita 4, para 4, and comes to the clinic due to heavy and painful menstrual bleeding for the past three months. Her last menstrual period was four weeks ago. Menarche was at age 10, and her menstrual periods have been uh, pretty normal for the uh, past uh, decade or so, and she's no noticed nothing too uh, uh, abnormal. She's sexually active and does not have pain with intercourse. Um, the patient has had a bilateral tubal ligation three years ago uh, after the birth of her last child, and she does not currently take any medications and has no known allergies. BMI is 24 kilograms. 
um, per meter squared, and her vital signs are completely normal. Um, on physical exam, we see that the uterus is uniformly enlarged, and we do a beta HCG test on her urine, it's negative. Uh, we do a biopsy, and it shows that she has a secretory endometrium. So the question is asking, which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's symptoms? So the, the most important piece of information here should be that, first of all, we rule out the fact that uh, the possibility that she could be pregnant um, because her urine beta HCG is positive and plus that she's already had a bilateral tubal ligation three years ago. And um, it's probably also not something to do with her vagina or cervix because that she does not have pain with intercourse. And that's one of the key points too. Um, the other uh, key piece of information here is that the uterus is uniformly enlarged. And that's something that's pretty unique to one condition, right? Um, and pairing that up with the fact that her biopsy shows that it has secretory endometrium, um, we can, uh, so the endometrium, again, it should not be within the, so it should only be in the inner lining layer of the uterus, right? But there is one condition where it can be in the middle layer of the uterus, which is the myometrium. So you have basically these endometrial tissue in the myometrium, and that condition is called adenomyosis. And in that case, it just so happens that, yeah, your uterus is going to be uniformly enlarged. And that condition also then would explain why she would have this heavy and painful menstrual bleeding. So uh, then uh, the question, remember, the question is asking which of the following is most, the most likely cause of this patient's symptoms. Well, it's going to be our adenomyosis, which is endometrial tissue in the myometrium. So moving on to the next case. We have a previously healthy 15-year-old girl coming to the office due to a vaginal discharge that began five days ago. And the discharge is grayish white and fishy smelling. The patient is currently sexually active with a male partner and only occasionally uses condoms. Um, her temperature is normal. Blood pressure is 106 over 52. Pulse is completely normal. And on vaginal exam, we find a small amount of grayish white discharge um, and this, but the cervix appears pretty normal. So the question is, which of the following would be most likely seen on a wet mount microscopy? So at this point, um, the, the, basically the sound bites that should kind of jump out at you is that we found what a grayish white and fishy smelling discharge in the vaginal bulb, but the cervix is normal, right? So there's normally three types of conditions that cause a sort of vaginal inflammation. And so we're thinking bacterial-wise, there's gonna be the, our Gardnerella, and then um, there's also going to be our Trichomonas. So th those, are the, those are the bacterial causes. And the, uh, there's another one, which is a fungal cause, and that could be Candida. But in this case, since we have a grayish-white discharge with a fish smell, right? That's pretty indicative of Gardnerella vaginalis. So um, these, these uh, bacteria would typically uh, have that fishy smell as well as produce that great white discharge. And um, in addition, what we would find, like the question said, what, will, uh, what we could find on wet mount microscopy are these what we call clue cells, which are epithelial, uh, these vaginal epithelial cells that are covered with Gardnerella bacteria. So these are what we call clue cells. And then, of course, um, there's another test for this, which 
is already mentioned in the question, but the, that fishy smell that you have once we basically uh, wash the vagina uh, with uh, potassium hydroxide, that's called the positive whiff test, right? So you're gonna have a sort of like uh, a mean smelling odor uh, with that. So this is a case of, again, bacterial uh, vaginosis. So moving on to the next case. So here we have a young Ashkenazi Jewish couple who comes um, into the ob guy in office uh, with an interest of conceiving and they are offered a genetic screen um, because there is a higher number of rare disease carriers in their um, ethnic population. So then our genetic test results show that they're both carriers for an autosomal recessive disorder of sphingomyelinase deficiency. And they're, so they're told that, okay, so there's a, look, there's a one in four chance that your child can be affected by this disorder. So the, ch the couple are, um, are curious then to see, okay, so let's say our child unfortunately does have this disorder, what sort of clinical features will they have? So that's the question. So again, sphingomyelinase deficiency, right? That's going to be pointing to our Neiman-Pick disease. Um, and the clinical features of that, well, the, the first thing that might come up in your mind is that you might have a uh, cherry red spot in your macula, but don't forget that this also is, this disease is also going to present with significant hepatosplenomegaly as well as uh, neurodegeneration. So those are the features that we would expect to see in their child if he or she is affected uh, by this autosomal recessive disorder. So moving on to the next case, here we have a two-year-old boy um, that came to the office, uh, brought to the office with by his parents. Um, currently, so he is trying to get potty training, and one night his parents noticed that the boy's urine had turned black overnight. And the child is normally pretty normal and has no major medical problems and doesn't take any medications. Um, in fact, for a two-year-old, he can speak two-word sentences, follow two-step directions, and jump with two feet off the ground. So that's all pretty normal. And examination, we do show that he's you know, pretty well-nourished and doesn't have any swelling or tenderness in any of his muscle or joints. And so we do a urinalysis on him. And indeed, the color turns black after a while. Um, the specific gravity is normal. There's no protein or blood or glucose or ketones or any signs of uh, bacteria. Um, in his urine. So then the question asks, which of the following conversion pathways is most likely deficient in this patient? So a lot of you might have already gotten this, just listening to the fact that the boy's urine did turn black overnight. So that's a very, very um, unique feature of alcaptonuria, which, uh, so it's a deficiency in um, homogentisic acid deoxygenase. So that's the enzyme that's deficient here. And what pathway is this enzyme involved in? Well, it's involved in the conversion of the amino acid tyrosine into fumarate, right? And ultimately, we know our fumarate is going to be uh, entering our TCA cycle. So this is one of those uh, funneling pathways that goes into our TCA cycle. So by blocking this enzyme, 
um, in alkaptonuria, we can't convert our tyrosine into fumarate. And this also happens to not only just cause our black urine, which um, in some patients, um, we can also see a darkening, um, a bluish, darkish skin color, as well as some sort of arthropathy um, when they turn into adults. So these are the three features, I would say, that are associated with alkaptonuria. Moving on to the next case, we have a 25-year-old man coming to the ED um, due to a painful erection for the past six hours. He's never had anything like this happen before, and he says it's unrelated to any sexual excitement that he had prior. Um, his medical history is significant for uh, major depressive disorder, OCD, as well as insomnia. Um, the patient does smoke for uh, uh, one pack of cigarettes a day for two years and drinks about one or two cans of beers uh, daily. Um, so we examine him and of course he has an engorged corpora cavernosa, but otherwise we don't see anything too abnormal. So uh, which the question is asking which of the following drugs is then most likely the cause of the patient's condition. So given the history that the patient does have major depressive disorder, um, OCD and insomnia, so there, um, the, 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 the drug that jumps out at me here is that there is a drug that happens to be an atypical antidepressant, but then is also very good at treating insomnia that would cause um, this uh, extended period of painful erection, which we also call um, priapism, right? So, and that drug is called trazodone. So it's going to be a 5-HT2 um, receptor antagonist, and it's normally used as an atypical antidepressant, or it's used to treat insomnia sometimes as well. So this would be the drug that has a very significant side effect of priapism, and that's probably what the patient is currently taking. Moving on to the next case, we have a 27-year-old man um, coming into the office complaining of sweating, heat intolerance, insomnia, and unintentional weight loss over the past four weeks. He also feels that his right um, testis is larger than the left, but he doesn't complain of any pain that comes with it. Um, he has no significant uh, medical history otherwise and doesn't take any medications. He's not smoking, he's not drinking, he's not using any illicit drugs. Blood pressure is totally normal. Um, pulse is at 108. Um, uh, we notice that his thyroid is mildly enlarged, so we then we perform a, a thyroid function test and we show that um, he has an elevated serum T4 and T3. So then we look at his testicles with ultrasound and it shows an hypoechoic mass within the right testicle. So the question is asking, well, elevated levels of which of the following substances would most likely explain this patient's symptoms? So at this point, so it seems like uh, there's a thyroid issue and a testicular issue, and it doesn't seem like there's much of a connection. But then you think, okay, this is the endocrine chapter. Well, um, you're going to have a lot of hormones that are just going into systemic circulation, and some of them have uh, a lot of similarities with each other, right? And then you... So you're thinking, okay, so what sort of substance that can be produced in the testicle, right, um, or by some sort of testicular formation that can ultimately affect your thyroid function? And then you realize, okay, so there are, so remember that we have four hormones that have very similar structures, right? Um, so, and that's 
our uh, thyroid stimulating hormone TSH, our FSH, LH, and HCG. All four of these actually have share the same alpha subunit, um, but they do have different downstream effects because of their different beta subunits. So in this case, we're thinking, so he has a mass within his right testicle, right? And that might be pr producing one of these that might um, be serving as a TSH-like molecule that's ultimately stimulating his thyroid gland to produce those T4s and T3s. And so by thinking it that way, then we realize, okay, HCG, right? So that's a typical hormone that can be produced by a multitude of testicular tumors, right? Including our um, choriocarcinoma or our seminoma. Um, all of these can produce some levels of HCG, and this HCG can then serve as basically like a um, TSH analog to then stimulate our thyroid gland, which would explain why his thyroid is mildly enlarged and why his thyroid function tests are elevated. So then, um, the, again, the question is asking elevated levels of which of the following is found. Well, it's going to be our beta HCG. So moving on to our next question. So here we have a 60-year-old man coming into the office, and he has an elevated PSA on a screening test. So then he, we're asking him about any of his symptoms that he's feeling, and he says, okay, yeah, it takes a bit of time before my urine starts flowing, but not really anything else. Um, so we examine him on a, a DRE, so digital rectal exam, and we find some hard prostate nodules, and we do a biopsy from there, and we do confirm that it is uh, prostate cancer, uh, so adenocarcinoma. And so we um, get him a surgeon, and the surgeon can, uh, performs a radical prostatectomy, but during the surgery, the nerves, unfortunately, that are surrounding the, uh, in, in the fascia that's surrounding the prostate gland were cut. So the question is asking, which of the following is then the most likely consequence of this nerve injury? And so we know that the, uh, nerve plexus that surrounds the pro prostate gland, well that's called uh, convenient, co conveniently called the prostatic plexus, it's originating from our inferior hypogastric plexus, right? And um, in, in this plexus there are two nerves that are very important that uh, are called the cavernous nerves and they, um, you can tell from the name, they're going to enervate your corp corpora cavernosa in the penis, right? So if they're cut during the prostatectomy, then um, your corpora cavernosa cannot be enervated and therefore you would probably have erectile dysfunction. So um, the question again is asking for what's the consequence of this nerve injury? Well, then the most common consequence of this nerve injury would be erectile dysfunction. Moving on to the next case, here we have a 20 year old woman coming into the office um, with vaginal discharge and vulvar puritis and the patient has had this discharge for four days. She's sexually active with multiple partners and uses um, her oral contraceptives. Vital signs are completely normal. Um, so uh, we examine her pelvis and uh, we also do a wet mount microscopy uh, off of a vaginal swab that we get off of hers. And we see these basically these uh, 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 canidiophores that are uh, branching off at you know, a pretty acute angle. So they're um, what we would also call like germ tubes, I guess. Um, and so the question is asking which of the following is the most appropriate pharmacotherapy for this patient. So this is actually a pretty straightforward question. Um, what we're seeing is probably candida, 
And for Canada, the go-to here are the azole drugs, right? So the, one of the options here is fluconazole. You can also go with uh, something like meconazole or um, uh, a clotrimazole or something like that. Those would all work. So this is going to be a typical case of vaginal candidiasis. Uh, moving on to the next case, here we have a 72-year-old woman, um, Gravita Zero, Para Zero, who comes into the office complaining of breathing difficulty and also an increasing abdominal girth. And she has had a decreased appetite and constipation that has worsened in the past six months. And the patient has complained of no other medical conditions, but again, she hasn't seen a healthcare provider in several years. So on physical exam, we see that her abdomen is indeed distended, and we see a right um, adnexal fullness. So that's something that's near her uterus, right? So then we, und uh, we make, uh, make sure that she's evaluated for it, and we take a biopsy of it, and it does show that um, this mass consists of uh, anaplastic epithelial cells with invasion into the stroma, as well as multiple papillary formations. And um, the, the, the cells are also atypical, right? So, and they're providing us with an exhibit, and I can tell you what's on there is that there's, yeah, again, there's anaplastic epithelial cells, it's papillary looking, and inside each of the um, finger-like projections, there's also a fibrovascular core. So the question is then, which of the following is most likely to be elevated in this patient? So the thing that might give this away is the fact that she's a 73-year-old woman, but she's gravita zero, para zero. She's never had any children, and that helps point us towards the right direction because what we should notice from this is that, okay, if someone is um, elderly but they have not had any children, that means that her, their ovaries have been you know, working for all these years, um, ovulating a lot, and going through a lot of healing and repair. So that is going to cause some chronic damage over time, right? So that is going to increase her risk of getting um, some sort of ovarian cancer. And um, ovarian cancers, again, they're going to be uh, right next to the uterus. That would explain the right um, adnexal fullness. And uh, at this point, it might have even metastasized um, elsewhere. We wouldn't even know, but that's not the, what the question is asking. Again, the question is asking which of the following uh, basically biomarkers is most likely to be elevated in this patient. Well, the most um, famous biomarker that's associated with our ovarian cancers is going to be our CA125, right? So that is likely to going to be uh, elevated. And the interesting thing about the CA125, just as in the side, right? So it's a, it's a, again, it's a very well-known um, well tumor marker for ovarian cancers, but we, um, it's basically, uh, it, it's normally not used for a diagnosis. Um, it's only used um, as a, a tr sort of um, follow-up biomarker after treatment or for checking for any recurrence. So you can't just say, okay, this person has an elevated CA125, so therefore they must have ovarian cancer. Of course, you have to do a biopsy like we did here first. And then, but what it is useful for is that after we treat it, let's say um, her CA125 is still elevated um, after some years, then we, we can maybe suspect, okay, maybe there's a recurrence of it. And maybe we didn't get all of it in the surgery and maybe more um, therapy is needed. So yeah, I think, so those are um, the 10 questions that we have today for the endocrine block as well as 
some um, reproductive uh, material that we have in there. So um, that is going to be it for the second episode of Stepping It Up. Um, again, I'm Ichi, and I'll see you guys on the next one.